Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The platonic ideal of a podcast is just some good friends talking. So for today's episode, that's what you'll get. Harper's Magazine Editor-in-Chief Christopher Beha is joined in conversation by Thomas Chatterton Williams to discuss what it means to be an expatriate writer. For the October issue, Williams traveled to Lukerbad, Switzerland to retrace James Baldwin's journey in Stranger in the Village, originally published by Harper's in 1953. Williams and Beha discussed the hypocrisy for both Baldwin and for Williams of seeking out, quote, white supremacy from its first principles in a country that is, today, less than 1% black. The two then survey the contemporary discourse on race in both the United States and France, where Williams has lived for over a decade. And finally, Williams discusses the subject of his final Easy Chair column, the political tension motivated by Le Wokisme and the AUKUS submarine deal between the US and France, which have always been more similar than either would like to admit. Also, apologies beforehand, there was a technical problem that affected Beha's side of the conversation, but it's certainly not unintelligible. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk with you about your most recent Easy Chair column about a trip you took to Leukerbad, Switzerland, and its connection to a piece that James Baldwin wrote for Harper's Magazine more than 50 years ago. But before we get into anything, I, I, I wanted you just to speak a little bit about Baldwin and what he has meant for you over the course of your life and your career. Sure, yeah. You know, I think I don't remember the first time my father would have mentioned him to me, but it was always a kind of name. My father is a quite a bookish man, and there were always authors and books that he was telling me to read, and Baldwin's name was one of those that was always in the mix. But I probably didn't come to him until I was already in college and already in my 20s. And at some point, I realized that I was also attracted to France, and I was finding a kind of freedom in leaving, you know, American ways of thinking about race uh, behind and kind of feeling able to create myself in Paris in my 20s and then more in my 30s. And so he was always a kind of, he originally started for me as a kind of touchstone on on that, that kind of that black American figure that's existed for so long who finds himself or herself freed from the American racial binary abroad. So he's kind of, for me, that that aspect of his character was so important, but then also you always have to return to the language and, you know, and then the, the essays and the insights, I find that they just, you know, there's a reason why he's been celebrated as a kind of writer who speaks to our moment from the past in ways that most of his contemporaries do not. Yeah, it's it's interesting because he is a touchstone for, for so many people in our moment. And you quote a very funny Ishmael Reed line, <laughs> there being yeah. more Baldwin impersonators than Elvis impersonators. But he's often embraced by contemporary writers uh, who also find him a touchstone on these issues who very much disagree with you, I'd say, on the way to read Baldwin's work into our sort of contemporary racial moment. Absolutely, which is, I think, a testament to the richness of his of his work and to the phases of his thought. You know, there's early Baldwin and then there's later Baldwin. And I think I'm much more interested in the early Baldwin and probably the Baldwin that's in sync with our times and very popular right now is the later, more militant, 
Baldwin, who's angry, who's kind of been chastised by the generation coming up below him and accused of being too comfortable in Paris in the south of France and with, with whiteness. And he's, he's trying to compensate for that in some, in some ways. But the Baldwin that really always spoke to me is the Baldwin who claims Shakespeare, who says that falling into the trap of thinking in terms of black and white is, a, is an illusion and a delusion and that we have to find ways through love to transcend those illusory divisions. I mean, that's the Baldwin, I think, is given short shrift in our moment now. So that brings us nicely to this discussion of early Baldwin into the subject at hand. In the early 50s, soon after his move to Europe, Baldwin spent several seasons in this small Swiss village of Lucredad, which is where he wrote much of Go Tell It on the Mountain. I believe, his first novel. And in 1953, the year in which the novel came out, he published an essay in Harper's Magazine called Stranger in the Village that is in part about his experience of spending time in this village. He was the first black man that many of these Swiss villagers had ever seen, and in part about thinking through the American racial situation and whiteness and blackness in America versus in a setting like this. So much of the essay is a commentary on race in America in this era of the the sort of early civil rights era as seen from this village. Maybe just tell us more about, about the essay, about your response to the essay and why you wanted to go to this village yourself. Well, yeah, it's a spectacular piece of writing. And, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, James Baldwin shows up. It's still quite a small village that's hard to get to. You know, you're going far away from, uh, you know, kind of cosmopolitan sense of mixing. But as he points out in the beginning of the essay, you're actually only like three hours away from Milan. You're, you're actually not so isolated. It's not so long to get to big cities, but it feels like you're outside of all of that. And he says that he's kind of, or Teju Cole in writing about this essay says that Baldwin went up into the mountain to meditate on white supremacy from its first principles. These people were made white in the world in a way that he could never be, even though he's this super worldly, successful and well-educated writer who they still, in some sense, Baldwin seems to feel even the children have a sense of superiority over him that cannot be overcome. So that's, that's the way it starts. And he needed to get away from Paris and he needed to clear his head and he needed to finish this book that was giving him so much trouble. And he had this very close friend in France, Lucien Happersberger, whose family had lived in the village for quite some time. And so when he, when he shows up there, you know, the kids have never seen a, a black person before. Most of the adults haven't. And they kind of stare. And he has this kind of, he, he's both withering in his critique of the racism that this seems to suggest, but he's also, it has the aspect of him that I think is missing in so many writers today and that I have always loved. He has this kind of generosity towards them too, you know? He understands why this could be. And his real ire, as you suggest, is trained on an American society that doesn't have such an excuse. Right. One, one of the things he mentions, you know, that he is kind of surprised to discover that there is any place where they truly have never seen a black person before. And he says that he was surprised as an American. And definitely one of the major subjects of the essay, which is something that has really come to the, to the fore of conversation in the last several years, but it's just the way in which 
race and the problems of race and and really the problems of the legacy of uh, slavery uh, have been central to American life for as long as America has existed and the way in which many, many white Americans would like to avoid that fact. Absolutely. And so one of the things I was thinking about in my essay, which was in some ways retracing Baldwin's journey and trying to see what Lickerbot is like now, but also thinking through the points that he was making and thinking through some of the things that have happened in Switzerland since 2020, since the racial reckoning that's happened in America, and thinking about the kind of global racial reckoning that has come from America's quest to reconsider its, its racial innocence or to, or to get rid of this idea of itself as being racially innocent. What does it mean, I thought, when I went to Switzerland, that in Geneva and Zurich and all over this country that actually doesn't have a colonial history, that doesn't have a legacy of slavery, that you have quite a lot of white people grappling with these very same questions. And so I, I, I kind of... I think I was making a movement that was similar to Baldwin's, but was also updated for our times because there is actually some kind of disconnect when you see the Swiss using the same verbal tics, the same jargon, the same thought constructs as Americans when they think about what their white complicity could be in, in global racism. Right. So one of Baldwin's key points is that a lot of white Americans would sort of like to be white in the way these Swiss villagers are. They would like... They're not basically not to have to deal with the legacy of what white Americans have done to black Americans. They want to be in a village where there just are no black people. And there's just, they can't get, there's no getting back to some moment of innocence. And now what's happened yeah. that white people in these other countries and other spaces are taking on that sort of American. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that was so intriguing to me. And it doesn't seem to fit. And I found when I was really thinking about what Baldwin was saying, I found and in talking to some of the villagers who were related to a man who still remembers him, who was a boy when he was there, I found that, you know, some of the accusations that Baldwin was making at the time didn't fit, and some of the self-recriminations now don't fit in a way that kind of mirrors through the through the decades. There's a kind of, uh, it, it, for me, it, it's a way of getting at the difficulty we always have when we try to generalize abstractions to deal with specific cultural textures. Uh, I don't know if that's too abstract for, for, for the podcast, but I mean... To make it less abstract, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about this, this open letter that some Swiss artists have written and your conversation with one Swiss artist of, I believe, Brazilian. Yeah, of Brazilian descent, but adopted and raised in a Swiss family and really kind of unaware of having a specific identity as a so-called person of color, but specifically as a black, as a person of African descent, it really wasn't a part of this, uh, Matthias, I think his, his name. He had a sense of himself simply as being Swiss. And when we got into conversation, he also seemed to suggest that he really had never personally suffered racism, but that he felt there was a need to kind of participate in a larger racial conversation, whether or not it contradicted his own sense of reality. And it seemed that, you know, he, he, he was hesitant to talk about everybody else's motivations, but it seemed like that was the case for many of the artists. And, you know, the, the letter was in many ways exactly the same type of letter that you would get in an American college campus environment in, 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 in an American city. And I was thinking to myself, 
what does it mean to talk about structural anti-blackness in a country that's that's less than one percent black? You know, it, it seems that it's it's a way of talking and thinking that doesn't actually mean the same thing there. Just as James Baldwin reflecting on whiteness in Lurkerbud really wasn't the same thing as reflecting on the whiteness he had escaped in Harlem. Right, and 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 one issue it, it also is that Switzerland does not have the colonial history that some other European countries. Right. It, Obviously, a country like France, where you live and where I've lived, they have a lot of, of history with respect to Africa to atone for. You know, it, it's not as if American slavery is a unique historical right. in that sense. But one of the differences that Baldwin points up is that in the colonial project, you were doing this to to people in their country, and you weren't actually living side by side with them. Right. And it is this unique feature of race in America that the black people being victimized were being victimized in America and remain your neighbors, and that there have always been black Americans for as long as there have been Americans. Right. So there's always been a need to kind of define against blackness and unfreedom in the American identity. But the, the situation, and, and to say the situation is different in Europe is not to excuse most European countries because they, they have these colonial histories with all sorts of problems with them, but they have not involved dealing with this issue on their sort of home territory. Right. And then Switzerland participated in what some scholars of whiteness and race in a book that I was really intrigued by and that I um, discuss a bit in the piece, Colonial Switzerland. They, des they describe Switzerland's role as a kind of secondary colonialism because they didn't participate directly in territories, but they, through Europeanness and through whiteness and through neutrality, they actually, the argument goes, should be interrogated as a kind of colonial power too by default or by proximity. Which I thought was a kind of, you know, it's a, it, it was interesting to me in the same way that it was interesting that we were talking about structural anti-blackness in Swiss art institutions. It seemed like, frankly, it seemed like a bit of a stretch to me, <laughs> you know. And so that's part of what the the piece is dealing with, you know, the, the world that James Baldwin inhabited and was reflecting on from the mountaintop. That world has changed. It's a very different world that I was reflecting on and remembering from that same kind of timeless mountaintop. I want to pull out a quote from Baldwin's essay that seems to relate to a great deal of your work and that I suspect you would take issue with. But he says about these, you know, peasants living in this Swiss village, the most illiterate among them is related in a way that I am not to Dante, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Aeschylus, Da Vinci, Rembrandt, and Racine. Meaning, you know, related by virtue of whiteness to those people. What do you make of that idea? Yeah, I think that's an idea that he later came to reject in his essay on Shakespeare and why Shakespeare actually does belong to him, learning to love Shakespeare. But it's it's something that is a startling part of the essay, and it's something I really reject because, in fact, all of those people mean more to him than they mean to most white people. And the idea that, uh, you know, James Baldwin has several times in his work said that, you know, a French peasant had Chartres when he had, like, he was in the bush watching the conquerors arrive. And it's it's evocative uh, imagery, but it's actually false. You know, we all participate in 
human history. This was a point that ta Coates made that I really agreed with. He, you know, when Saul Bellows said, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? He said, Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus. And that's it. And, I, and Baldwin does come to understand that, but he allows that kind of sense of inferiority into his work sometimes, which is heartbreaking because we know that he did more with this tradition than, than most uh, people of any color would. I wanted to sort of take a step back and, and speak more generally about your experience as an American living in France, who is, among other things, sort of a, a professional observer of American culture. You know, that was, you know, a role that Baldwin played, obviously. And, you know, in one sense, he, he went to Europe to escape the racial situation in America. But, but, but he, he remained fascinated. He, he, what, what he did a great deal of the time was from this mm-hmm. vantage point, then look back on this and, and, and comment on it. And I wonder what that vantage point has meant for you. That's a great question. You know, I think that there really is something to the idea that you can observe a culture more clearly in some ways from being outside of from from realizing that a lot of the premises and presuppositions that you that would go unquestioned were you at home are not necessarily the same shared by the people that you're living around. And so you have to justify a lot of the things that you'd otherwise take for granted. That has meant that I find France interesting, but oftentimes I find France interesting or Europe interesting in the contrasts that I draw. And so I think it's been a real, you know, I think that it's been, it's helped me understand, for example, with my, with my last book, having children in France, having African descended, West African descended children who are, you know, the great, great, great grandchildren of slaves, but who physically appear white in France, in America, you know, they would technically be people of color. They could apply to college as, as African-Americans. They could be politically black. They could even be in certain circles. They could just define themselves as black. In, in, in Europe, that's simply not an assumption the French start with, and you have to explain it. And as I came to explain this American assumption that I'd always grown up with in my own life, the logic of it started to unravel because I realized that there are other ways of thinking about these things. And so I think that's been just a tremendous asset to me. But it's, you know, you always deal with the accusations that Baldwin dealt with, which certainly is a part of my, uh, my experience, which is that people say, look, you're in France. You, you, you've checked out of the American debate. So you really, who cares if you think Trump is kind of authoritarian? You don't live here anymore. So you always have to justify your interventions in the American discourse in a way you wouldn't if you stayed home. Do you think that Social media, to put it bluntly, slash, you know, the role that the internet plays in culture has made it more difficult to even kind of like play the role of the expatriate. Like everyone's kind of in the same. Well, yeah. That's also made it easier to maintain a presence in America, too. You know, it feels like you haven't completely left because I'm reacting to the same social media that everybody else is. And in many ways, a lot of our experiences are happening online now, and those are accessible from anywhere. So it's, I think in a way, it's a real advantage uh, now to, to write from elsewhere, but to also maintain a foot in the online world that, uh, that everyone else is in. I have some friends who were expat writers who arrived in Paris in the 90s, and they really, they became cut off in a way that my generation, your generation, doesn't have to be anymore. Yeah. I have to say, though, I, I mean, if I, if I had moved to France in the 80s or the 90s and sort of watched the introduction of, you know, 
MACDO and what else. I might now look at France and be struck with how Americanized mm-hmm. it's become, but maybe in part because I had been told about that process or just had a sense of the way that globalization homogenized everything. I was more struck by how distinctly French it remained still is and how distinctly European you know Europe is and and the way that it, it, it does it does remain culturally quite different from Yeah, it does, but that, that's what's so fascinating to me and this part of this piece, the, the globalization of a kind of social justice language that is fundamentally not just English but American. It's it's interesting because it, you know the French now there is a big debate in France about le wokisme about you know the same type of debate we're having in America about you know to what degree is a kind of obsession with identity on the left changing our cultural institutions that same kind of debate through American language has arrived in France but actually France isn't really woke uh, and it, and is, is in a very different place than America is at this moment and so it, it, it's interesting to see to what extent these ideas have penetrated Europe but to what extent Europe refuses to change France isn't actually changing nearly as rapidly the point you make is that a generation ago or a half a generation ago it was French theory sort of postmodernism coming to American culture, and the panic was that these very French un-American ideas were being introduced by way of academia into American culture, and that was a big element of the culture wars. And now this sort of reverse is going on. Yeah, and what's amazing is that some of the really um, treacherous ideas that are coming to France that Macron and many others have said is a kind of creeping Americanization of French culture, they, they are rooted in a kind of French export that the French no longer recognizes as their own. So this kind of back and forth and this interplay has been going on for a while. But yeah, you know, there's a case to be made that I, like a lot of the excesses of identity politics can be laid at the door of, you know, of Foucault and, of, and Derrida and a couple of others. And so, yeah, what is American and what is French is not always as clear as as it seems on the surface. If, if I can get into the weeds a little bit on the on French politics, do you think that's a, a a cynical play by Macron dealing with having to face down Le Pen and potentially in the next election? And in, in your next column after this, you talk a bit about the current U.S.-French relations, particularly as it pertains to this Australian nuclear sub-deal and the sort of opportunity it creates for Macron for gestures like pulling the diplomats and things like that. And I wonder to what extent that that feels like politics and to what extent it feels like genuine anxiety about Mm -hmm. these American ideas creeping into French culture. Well, that's a really is a good question because I think it's not so simple. I think it's opportunistic, certainly in the context of the election that Macron wants to establish himself as not being soft on some of that. But I also think it's a genuinely held feeling that many, many French people have, and I would imagine Macron would have as well, that they already have a multicultural, diverse society, and they have a different way of doing multiculturalism, of doing a mixed, complex, multi-ethnic polity than America does, in that they really believe that their traditions 
should be fought for and preserved and not simply sacrificed to a kind of homogenization of, of social justice rhetoric that might work better in America with a history of slavery within its own borders than it works in a country that has you know, defined itself by its universalizing mission and has defined itself by the idea that anyone can be privately a religion or an ethnicity, but publicly everybody is a Frenchman or woman and, and participates in the same rights. Of course, it doesn't work that way in practice, but it is a way of conceiving a French society that I think matters and not just to white French, but you really do hear so-called French people of color, if we're using American lingo, uh, you really hear them make the case for the Republican ideal in a way that you don't always imagine would necessarily be their their starting point. Yeah. I think that, uh, well, it, it is a matter of public record already, but certainly by the time this, this podcast is out to listeners, that your column about the Australian subs and, and U.S.-French uh, relations is going to be your last uh, easy chair column for us. And we're, we're sorry to see you go, but we wish you the best uh, as you go on. But do you want to just talk a little bit about the experience of doing this column for the last two years? And, and Sure, yeah. And this way about the United States and just what you, what, what you enjoyed doing with this real estate in the magazine? It's been an amazing experience. And, and, and you know, I had the the luck to be in Europe and to have editors who said, you know, take the opportunity to don't just stay in Paris, but go to other countries, get on a train or get on a plane and, and, and tell us what else is going on. So my second column, you know, I wrote from Lisbon and I was writing about the way that, you know, the Portuguese were thinking through, you know, a declining population and how to attract immigration and, and a different way of conceiving otherness and why the Portuguese were not dealing with some of the xenophobic disruption that other countries were dealing with. And then, you know, I went to Switzerland and it's just been, it's been a way of slowly thinking about current events because, you know, there's a bit of lead time. It's every other month I share with another writer. And so it's a, it's an opinion column reacting to events, but at a pace that allows you to be more reflexive than I've experienced in other spaces. And so I think, you know, I can't really think of another column that is exactly comparable. It's, it's like every other month you get to do a letter from Europe. And for me, it was just for two years, it was just an absolute pleasure to do. Well, it was a pleasure to work with you on it. While we're, we're here having this conversation, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one thing that came out of that relationship, which is, you know, I remember very well about a year and a half ago when you reached out to me and you said, you know, some people and I are putting this open letter together about the current kind of environment with respect to speaking honestly about, uh, you know, difficult issues. And we've got a lot of a lot of people who are excited to sign on, and you and I started talking about it. And um, did first of all, I just want to say, did you obviously you knew you knew it was it, it was it was meant to be a substantial intervention in this debate. That was that was the idea, and that was part of the ambition in terms of the the caliber of people who you were getting to sign on. But did you have any inkling? that a year and a half later, so many people would still be obsessed <laughs> with this. <laughs> no, and I, and I had no inkling that, you know, it would be something that I, I still, am, it's still a big deal in France, you know, it's still a big deal in the UK. It struck some type of chord that I think 
is a testament to the fact that it's it's not talking about a made up problem. We touched something that a lot of people feel is 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 there in the culture at large. But I know I had no idea, and you know, I it was there was some type of there were, there were waves of uh, of backlash to it that I think none of us anticipated. You know, the letter was framed in different contexts as being opposed to many things that it actually wasn't opposed to. It was affirming certain values that, you know, that as one of the signatories, Noam Chomsky said, are, are quite anodyne, you know, in fact. So I think it, it you know, it came at a moment that it, it tapped into something and it became a cultural touchstone and larger than I think any of us ever expected. But, you know, that couldn't have happened without the, the firm and immediate support by a magazine like Harper's that when I think about where else it could have been published, I, 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 I always come up blank. So it was, it was this document with some really important signatories, but it was also the institution of Harper's that allowed for this to be what it, what it actually became. Yeah, I have been having a few conversations recently on these topics with people who have said that in their words, or in the words of one person I had this conversation with, that, that it does seem like the pendulum is, is, is swinging back and someone else used the, the, the metaphor of the tide turning, but that maybe we are coming down from, from the heights of this sort of, that well, to mix the metaphor, the heights of the narrowing of, of acceptable discourse. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think that both things are happening at once. I think that there are some instances of, of, of a new willingness to reassess the excesses of a kind of new censoriousness that was taking over. But, you know, then I look at something like what happened at MIT a couple of weeks ago where a scientist has a lecture canceled, not based on anything that he was going to speak about, but based on things he had said at another school in another context. And the argument was that it makes communities at MIT unsafe for him simply to to participate as a scientist at their institution. I mean, that's very alarming. And I think in some ways that's that's as bad as it's, that's worse than some of the examples I had in mind a year and a half ago. So I think that it's one of these things where I just don't know if you'll get a clean pendulum swing or a clean turn of the tide. It will be getting worse and better. And in that chaos, I think, you know, there's opportunity, but it's also, you know, we don't have a sense of how to operate. We don't have goalposts. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I, would, I wouldn't say the pendulum has swung back. Do you, I guess my question would be, I mean, you obviously are not someone who, whether you felt this pressure, you, you have tried not to let, you know, what you say be dictated by this pressure. But on, on a personal level, do you feel like the, the way that, this pressure applies to, to you has changed? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I feel uh, as a as a writer, I feel that I have not had to censor myself. And I think that it's impossible to prove a counterfactual. I've probably lost opportunities for that. But, you know, I recently was in conversation with Cornell West, another signatory, and he said something that I really appreciated. He said, you know, maybe, maybe you lose some opportunities for making certain positions publicly, but, you know, none of us are doing this to chase the golden calf. And, you know, you're doing what you believe in, and so it, the chips fall as they may. So I think that I probably, you know, I'm able to keep working in the vein that I do in some ways, paradoxically, because I'm protected by my identity in a way that I ultimately am often arguing to reject. 
Yeah. If that makes sense. That does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just say on, on, on a personal note that um, you and I are, of course, buddies going back a while, but it's been such a pleasure to work with you here. And uh, we're sorry to see you. Likewise, it's painful to leave for me as well. Harper's was the first magazine that I delved into the archives at Georgetown to kind of study and dream about one day writing for. And so the past two years have been kind of a professional dream come true for me. And to do it with you as a friend. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 